Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I couldn't understand why there wasn't a lot of makeup for women of color. <laughs> I never understood that because I had lots of friends of color. There was so much diversity, especially in New York. And so uh, we, we developed colors that really, um, you know, worked on all people. We had like 35 foundation colors from blue-black skins to very the palest of, of, of porcelain skins. And we sort of covered everybody. Hey guys, welcome to Breaking Beauty, the podcast all about the best-selling beauty products and the damn good stories behind them. We're your hosts, Carlene Higgins and Jill Dunn. Hello everybody, welcome back to Breaking Beauty. This is Jill here. This is Carlene. So Canada Day is just upon us and you know, we've talked a lot on this show, Carlene, about some hot Canadian beauty brands. Yeah, we've talked about nude sticks, Desiem. Sage, The Seven Virtues. Yeah, these have all been guests. These Mm -hmm. people, these brands have all been guests on our show. But Mm -hmm. I think we can both agree there's only one Canadian household name in the beauty biz. Yeah, that even like my grandmother, if she were still here, would know (laughs) the name of. And that is MAC Cosmetics. Yeah. Yeah. So this was like a career making moment for Jill and I. Yes. um, To be able to sit down with Frank Toskin, co-founder of the original MAC Cosmetics, was just like dream come true. Incredible. He, this is his first interview in four years. Mm -hmm. He is very much under the radar, does his own thing. He doesn't grant interviews a lot. Reason being, he's not involved in MAC Cosmetics in the day-to-day any longer. He sold the business to Estee Lauder. He and his um, co-founding partner, Frank Angelo, who has sadly since passed away, they sold MAC to Estee Lauder in what year was it? 98. 1998. Yeah. So So um, Jill had to do some serious (laughs) sleuthing. I I did what I do, which is just creep on the internet until I find something that I can use. Until she finds a way. Yes. I love Um, that about you. But the thing was, we knew we could do this because he's right here in our backyard. Yeah. Let's set the scene where we were. Yeah. So he actually lives in Toronto and we... He sat down in his actual real life living room in a condo in Yorkville. We won't tell you more than that. We don't want, you know, super fans showing up at his door. But yeah, we were sitting on the sofa. His two dogs were there. Yeah. It was so intimate and Very lovely. Relaxed. He is so warm. Yeah. Loved hanging out with him. We have photo evidence and it looks like we've just woken up on Christmas morning. It's <laughs> hilarious. We look like a family. 
<laughs> we're all like yeah, gathered around the mic with the couple with the dogs. Yeah. And only thing that's missing is like the Russian red lipstick and the yeah. uh, and like the strobe cream. <laughs> they weren't too far away. But <laughs> honestly, we talked for a really long time. So for the first time ever, we are releasing this very special episode in two parts. Yeah. There was just so much great stuff. We yeah. had to had to share it. Couldn't and leave it on the so cutting room floor. He so rarely speaks to media. Yeah. We had to get this origin story into your guys's ears. Mm-hmm. There's just so much more than that. But yeah. let's start with a little bit of beauty school knowledge. Yeah. If people do not know, MAC was founded in 1984 mm-hmm. and it stands for Makeup Art Cosmetics. Its tagline is all ages, all races, all sexes. That was the original. It's now updated to be all races, all ages, all genders. So when you think about the fact that they launched with that in 1984, mm-hmm. how progressive that truly was. Mm-hmm. I mean, that could be a tagline yeah. for a makeup brand launching today. Yeah. And I'm sure internally that is so many brands ethos but they really are standing on the shoulders of a giant which is mac cosmetics yeah who broke down barriers at retail level in people's minds yeah they paved the way there would Mm -hmm. be no two-faced probably no fenty beauty mac just came in and was like we're We're just just doing us we're just gonna have um cross dressers at our counter we're gonna have um, makeup in pots yeah who's using those stupid sponges we don't need those like um they just were like rebellious and coming out with like millions of colors that people thought nobody would ever buy because it was all about self-expression not products you needed yes but products that you wanted yeah to be able to express who you truly were inside and then you talk about cruelty free you talk about recycling programs back to mac i mean so incredibly progressive these you've got to give credit where credit's due and like a tribe an army Mm -hmm. of people you knew the you know i remember one of linda wells editor letters one of my favorite ones she ever wrote at allure was talking about taking a trip to toronto and seeing tribes of people dressed head to toe in black Mm -hmm. going to like a mac conference you know you wanted to be part of that yeah and it wasn't try hard it was inclusive yeah well i remember myself in the early 90s let's say like playing with makeup and there was no way that I was going to go out, out and buy any other brand. No. At the time, it was the only one that a young, cool person would use. Yeah. And I was obsessed with twig yeah. lipstick. It of was course. like a brownie, mauve shade yeah. that, I mean, everybody wore it. And Spice Lip Liner, everybody wore it. Yeah, and you're talking about, you know, super, super models of that day and that era mm-hmm. to everyone. This was like when we were in high school, right? This is yeah. like the heyday yeah. or junior high or whatever yeah but you know mac is is it's still leading the charge it's still like the number Mm -hmm. one prestige brand even though Mm -hmm. um it's been sold you know it's in estee lauder's hands now yeah the parent company a mac lipstick is sold every second around the world yeah and it's best known for my favorite iconic shades like ruby woo Mm -hmm. um remember even when rihanna came out with her collection for mac long before fenty beauty she did re re woo at her own spin on it yeah and it was so great it's like that bluish red mm-hmm. it's the best seller there's four tubes sold every minute of ruby woo around the world it's crazy yeah let's talk about philanthropy and so in 1994 viva glam was born yes they launched their very first special edition lipstick it was a deep red and it was completely unprecedented because 100 percent of the sales ever 
every penny went back to the Mac AIDS fund. Yeah. And this isn't profits. This isn't proceeds. It's literally every dollar. Nobody took a commission. You're going to hear all about that later, but it's just so groundbreaking and celebrating 25 years next Next year. year. Yeah. So amazing. How much did they raise again? $480 million have gone to this cause. Um, They have had, you know, top notch celebrities that have come on board. RuPaul was the very first. So great. Love RuPaul and the perfect face. And again, Frank is going to tell us how that came together in the beginning. Katie Lang was another one. Doesn't even wear makeup. No, a queer woman who doesn't wear makeup. Like back in the day when all the models were like, uh, Nikki Taylor yeah and uh who else was like fronting beauty campaigns back then Cindy Crawford yeah exactly yeah. these fresh-faced all-American girls wearing the glowy makeup yeah. and he's just like no I mean a brand with soul is yes. what they were exactly like so much soul yeah um and it it, it really does continue to today and yeah. I think that is just so fantastic to see Nicki Minaj has done Viva Glam Miley Cyrus Mac is sold in over a hundred countries now um, and starting this fall, they will actually enter Sephora.ca yes. here in Canada. Yes. Can't say the same for the U.S., but you guys have Alta. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's going to be just one other place where we can where we can find Max. So yep. that's a big that's a milestone. Big that's huge. Them. That is absolutely huge. We're going to hear so much from Frank, but we just want to make a note that we got a bit of a scoop while we were there because I was bugging him to make a Netflix documentary about Mac. And uh, he said that actually somebody has recently written a book. It's called Viva Mac AIDS Toronto Fashion and the Philanthropic Practices of Mac Cosmetics. It's written by Andrea Benoit and it comes out in 2019, published by the University of Toronto. And stay tuned in part two of our interview series with Mac. We actually get the author herself on the phone to learn more about the project and the book. Again, Max Canadian roots, they do remain strong. Many of the best sellers are still manufactured right here in Markham, Ontario, mm-hmm. just outside of Toronto. Uh, the Mac lipstick, the Mac lip glass, yeah. another like fan favorite. Did I ever tell you when I went to Markham? No. And I, and I was there. It was it honestly wasn't that long ago. Lucky I think girl. it was like 2012. I was there. Okay. And I had the lab coat on and I was making my own lip gloss. And I remember this like defining moment where you put added the fragrance into your lip gloss color. And it's just, it just brought you right back because like that, because it's that vanilla smell. That's something else that really made them stand out. Yeah. That smell went into all their lipsticks and to the lip gloss, which just created a whole other category. Just another example of how they broke ground. Yeah, exactly. So So do you guys have your Russian red out right now? Put it on, (laughs) get your strobe cream, get get your your, furry uh, slippers out, your blot powder, um, you know, and we haven't even touched on how Mac created all the trends around the world basically for the last several decades oh oh, and what about you guys have to listen to the end because frank is going to tell us all about his next indie startup project yes which is i'm a big fan of this brand and the products already yeah great um and it will be touching down um to south beach yeah starting in about a year so i'm not going to give away any more than that you're going to have to listen to part two yeah so that's going to drop tomorrow the sequel Mm -hmm. We begin with Frank as a young child, a dreamer in every sense of the word. Dig. I'm Frank Toskin, and I'm the co-founder of Mac Cosmetics. I was uh, born in a small town in um, 
what is now Slovenia, which used to be former uh, Italy, which used to be former Yugoslavia. So that's where I was kind of sequestered for the first six years of my life with my grandparents because my parents were refugees at that time and, and my mom was in Italy. My father was sort of trying to get out of Yugoslavia. So I, I grew up with my grandparents. My uh, grandmother was a dressmaker. So I sat beside her for endless hours and that's, I think, where my interest in fashion and, and design came from. Sitting beside her, I started uh, you know, using the little pedal sewing machine and, uh, and uh, that's kind of like where I got, I think, a lot of my interest from my grandmother. Uh, very soon after that, my parents decided to come to Canada. Um, so my grandparents took me with my little suitcase because that's all you were allowed to leave uh, with in a communist country at that time. And they took me to the border reunited we, with my parents on the other side, and uh, we spent a year in a refugee camp in near Trieste, and uh, my parents finally got an okay, an approval to come to Canada. So we landed in Halifax in 58. It was like this probably old ship that we came on, and everybody was vomiting because the seas were rough. And we landed in Halifax, and uh, I think it was around the end of March, and it was gray and dark and cold. And we had just come from this sunny, bright, beautiful place in northern Italy. And it was kind of depressing. And we were put on a train, <laughs> shipped out west to Calgary. My parents were put to work on a sugar beets farm. And uh, their, their bubble was kind of burst at that time because they, they came here for the better life. <laughs> so here they found themselves farming from morning to sunset, and uh, it wasn't what they expected. Uh, it was a hard hardship for them. At that time, they had to pay for their way over, so they had to work it off, their, their, their fare over here. And uh, luckily, we came to tr they decided to come to Toronto, and they decided to go back to Italy. Uh, but uh, we passed through Toronto and they met some friends here and we ended up staying here. So that's kind of like uh, how we got here. What does a five-year-old pack on a journey to a whole new world? Well, I took a little toy that I still have and it was a little push toy that you push with your finger from the bottom and it was two people dancing around and it was a little wooden toy and I still have that. Uh, a little suit that was made by my grandmother uh, I didn't keep that, unfortunately, and I didn't keep the suitcase. I think the only thing I kept was a little toy. I'm glad that my parents did come here. I do feel displaced sometimes, though, because, you know, I still have my first language was, uh, first of all, it was uh, Slovenian, and then it was Italian, and that's where I went to school for the first year of my life. It was a little, a little odd for a young child to, to you know, to be thrown in, in, into grade one and uh, try and understand how this system works. I, I remember a particular incident where the teacher was uh, calling me by my name, and it was she was calling me Franco, and uh, I would say, no, 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 mi chiamo Franco, not Franco. So I, I stopped responding to her, and I'm sure she hated me, <laughs> because I just would not answer to, to Franco. It taught my parents and myself, you know, uh, how to fit in, and how to adapt and uh, you know taught us a lot about hard work and uh, the struggles that uh, people have to go through um, you know we weren't uh, privileged my parents weren't privileged they were they were also displaced and you know we bonded together as a family a unit and that was invaluable for 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 us for the support that that i later counted on my parents for because they were there for me and i was there for them 
A person's first job is often seemingly random, but sometimes when you look back, you realize it was those small, invaluable lessons that can last a lifetime, as was the case with Frank. Uh, my first job was uh, making Christmas trees. I worked for normal manufacturing. They made Christmas trees and Christmas uh, lights. <laughs> and uh, that was my first job. I had to lie about my age because uh, I, I had to be 16 to work in the factory. I, I was 14. And, but uh, in, in those days, nobody really questioned you or asked you for your passport or any <laughs> kind of, uh, you know, um, certificate to, to prove that you were 16. So I, I ended up getting that job. And... Uh, I loved it. it for the time. It gave me the money that I needed and uh, gave me the opportunity to buy my first car as soon as I turned 16. So there was freedom in working. My car was a Corvair Monza. I know. <laughs> what is that? It was a, it, it, it's an old car, a little sports car that with a rusted uh, floor. With a rusted floor. I remember I could see the, the street as I was driving, but I think it was probably about $250. Anyway, it did the trick. It got me from uh, the suburbs to downtown Toronto. So uh, that, that's all I needed. And nothing ever meant as much to me in my life again. I was able to get a Mercedes and I was able to get, uh, you know, uh, better cars, but nothing gave me the excitement and the pleasure that that cheap little rusted out Corvair Monza did. Now we come to the next chapter, how the co-founders of Mac, Frank Toskin, and the late Frank Angelo, also known as the Two Franks, met. I met Frank when I was around 21 at a dance club called the Manatee here. And uh, I remember that uh, we only had a couple of dance clubs as gay, gay youth at that time in Toronto. And uh, so we'd all hang out as a community in these two or three clubs that we had. And I remember I'd always catch a glimpse of Frank staring at me from far away the other side of the room. And one day I managed to, you know, get the nerve to go up to him and say, you know, what the hell are you looking at? You're, you're, you're starting to drive me crazy and bug me. And he said, I'm looking at you because I like you. And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> and uh, that was it. You know, it was, uh, that was the start of our, our relationship. You know, got to know each other and, and uh, we really liked each other. Uh, and uh, that was kind of like it. The world is a better place for having had someone like Frank Angelo here. Um, he was um, back as a child. I know that he was a very precocious child. He, he started carving out his own career, I think by the age of 9 or 10. He uh, put a, ba a band together at the age of 12, and by the age of 14 he was recording, and uh, by the age of 15 he was uh, already uh, traveling North America and performing. So um, he came to Toronto back in the 60s and uh, met Blair James, who was a talented hairdresser at that time and uh, they started a place called the Haircutting Place, and it was the first ever of its kind. They did unisex haircutting, just at the time when the hippies with long hair were, were cutting their hair, and they didn't want to go to formal salons. So I kind of like, you know, hung around and watched what everybody was doing, and I realized there was a, an opportunity there to step in and, and create a job and a role for myself. And I started doing photography. I knew he was buying like all these posters of haircuts because that's what the haircutting place was known for, for all of these haircuts that they developed. And every month they'd come out with new haircuts. Um, 
I looked at these posters and I thought, well, I, I think I can do better than that. I went to hair school and uh, I started learning how to cut hair and I started learning how to you know, take fo photographs. And uh, so I started uh, producing some of these posters, which uh, I started selling in other hair salons as well, tacky posters of that time, but uh, still interesting. It gave me a start and it gave me an insight into makeup and how light works with film. And so I, I learned a lot out of that, um, that from that time. My stint at school was very short because I went to Bruno's and one day, uh, you know, we would bring in, people came in off the street It was, and we did their hair for free. So one day this very, uh, this lady came in and she, she wasn't a really a nice person. Anyway, I, I, I was given her as, as a client and this is how we practice and I put her in the shampoo chair and I forgot to put the the uh, cape behind the chair so I shampooed her hair and, and, uh, and without the cape being behind the chair so all the water ran down onto the seat and she was soaking wet when she got up and she screamed at me and she lost it in the store and I, I kind of and the, and the teacher started uh, you know uh, siding with her and I it was an honest mistake that didn't go well and I walked out so I never really got to finish hair school but I got to know enough about it so I I didn't get to create great hairstyles. I was more an updo guy. I used to love doing updos and roller sets and pin curls, nine o'clock pin curls, three o'clock pin curls and updos. That's what it was all about at that time. If you walk by a Mac counter today, you'd never imagine that those bright and bold pots of eyeshadows, fluorescent lipsticks and glittery glitters were born in Frank Toskin's kitchen. But that's exactly how the story goes. When I started doing makeup, there wasn't really a lot on the market. You know, there, there was very l limited product. I mean, most things were sold, eyeshadows were sold in little palette compacts of three colors, light, medium, and dark. And, and you know, it was like a paint by numbers uh, approach that most cosmetic companies took. If you were, if you had red hair, you'd wear green eyeshadow with yellow tones. And if you had blonde hair, you could wear blues. And, and anyway, I, I found it very restricting and uh, I started going to curries and I started going to stores and starting to mix my own blend of colors and I started to take brushes because there weren't brushes on the market at that time. Most people use sponge tip applicators or they use their fingers. That's the way makeup was typically applied back then. You know, and I couldn't find brushes so I would go to like the art stores and find brushes that worked for me. Every type of product works better with a different type of a specific brush, whether it's a, if it's a wet product, it'll work better with a synthetic, if it's a dry product, it'll work better with a natural hairbrush. So, um, you know, I developed my own brushes and uh, then sent them off and had them duplicated and they were a hit. Nobody was doing it at the time, really. It was uh, like, I mean, I don't know, I mean, you're younger than me, but I know my mother only used her fingers and or this little, little sponge tip applicator that came in the compacts at the time. I think they've done away with most of those things now because people have, the industry has realized there's money to be made in brushes. And I think we also changed the face of makeup in, in terms of education. You know, when Mac, when, when we launched Mac, we, it was about teaching people how to use products correctly and with the right tools and that had never been done before um, it was more cosmetic companies tend to sell product and that was the end of it we we brought people in taught people how to use makeup and the tools that were, were right for what they wanted to achieve and then they were your customers for life because you just you just help them learn and be discriminating about the products that they bought
Mac 1.0 quickly outgrew the kitchen sink, and as the word was getting out in the makeup artist community, the demand started to grow to the point where they opened their very first standalone pro store. Our first pro store was on Parliament and Carleton, not a great area, and people wonder why we opened there, but the building was cheap, and <laughs> Frank and I lived on the top floor. We had our office on the second floor. Uh, we had a beauty salon called Mac Hair on the main floor, and downstairs I did my makeup in, in, in kind of private. And uh, at that time, it was uh, I just really m made and developed products for professionals, um, very you know raw products, like things like pigments and things that makeup artists could use themselves and mix with mediums that they wanted to and uh, that just grew i mean the demand just just grew it was by appointment only when i when i was on my own there and then all of a sudden we started packaging the products and uh, it just it just evolved how do homemade cosmetics go to the next level we've said it before on breaking beauty podcast and we'll say it again it's always good to know a chemist my sister was dating a chemist at the time, and uh, I thought that, uh, you know, I brought him in and said, Vic, you know, I've got a challenge here for you. Can we, can we, do you think we can work on some products together? Vic had never made makeup before, so, you know, we, we went to the library, got some books, and we learned how to mix some products. Uh, I knew what I wanted, and he gave me the opportunity to actually uh, see it to fruition. So then all of a sudden, I was able to create products that had never been made before. And, um, you know, people really embraced uh, all this new creative opportunity that they had with makeup. I always loved makeup for the fact that it was uh, playful and I always felt it wasn't necessary to wear makeup. It was something that people did and used as an accessory to have fun with, but never did I sell products because I, I ever told anyone that they needed a product to make them look better. Um, so we always took a very uh, different approach uh, in the way we sold our products. There was Frank and then there was Vic and then there was uh, you know my sister and then there was uh, uh, Rod Almer at the Bay, who embraced who we were and allowed us to come into the department store. And, you know, we didn't fit into to, to the uh, cosmetic department, so, uh, but he wanted to give us a chance. You know, we were young and hungry and eager, and uh, he thought we had something to offer, and he recognized that. And uh, so he said, you know what, I'll give you a space on the second floor, back in the corner, and we'll see how, how you do there. And, uh, you know, I work there. Uh, we had uh, another two males working in, in there, and, and that was un unheard of in, in, in those days to have guys working at the uh, makeup department. We'd, uh, we'd get our curious clients in, we'd do their makeup, they'd go back to the office, and all of a sudden the next day, like there were 10 other women that came in saying, wow, you know, you did this for my friend yesterday, can you do this for me? And that just grew, it just, it just grew and grew from that um, word of mouth. There's a lot of pressure in the cosmetic department to perform like everyone else, and it's very competitive, and you sell, you know, generally because of commission and, and pressure from, from, from the, the different brands to, to compete. So we didn't have that to worry about. We just worried about how to do what we did well. It's 1985, and Mac decides it needs to go to the heart of the action, so it opens its first standalone store for consumers in New York City. Christopher and Gay Street was the corner we opened on. 
uh, most people thought we were crazy for going down in, in, in Greenwich Village. They said, you know, this is not where you start, right? But um, we we knew that there was a vibe there, and, and and there was a there was a creative energy in that area. It's where all the drag queens lived. It's where kind of like the underground scene was percolating at the time, and there was so much change and excitement in that area. You know, the other areas of New York were really established. So that's that's kind of what fit our personality at the time. And, uh, you know, it was a very exciting time. We had, uh, you know, celebrities started coming in. We had, uh, we hired uh, drag queens like Lady Bunny and uh, Lady Miss Guy. RuPaul was in the store. Uh, Lady Miss Kier would come in. I think uh, even Lady Gaga would be at the window peeking in because she was too young at the time. I heard a story of that. She would come down to the store and just look at all the drag queens and, and wish she was old enough to come in and wear, wear the makeup and just participate. So we had, there was a real energy and a vibe. Within a year, we had busloads of people coming down from, from up, uptown uh, and uh, because we became kind of like the, the, the show on Saturdays and Sundays. And uh, it was an exciting time. None of what we did was really calculated. It all just evolved and developed from who we were as people. And, uh, and all the thoughts and all the ideas came from all different aspects of life. And, you know, for all races, all sexes, uh, first of all, I couldn't understand why, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of makeup for women of color. <laughs> I never understood that because I had lots of friends of color. So, um, and, 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 you know, the, there was so much diversity, especially in New York. And so uh, we, we developed colors and that was part of our success as well. We, we developed colors that really, um, you know, worked on all people. We had like 35 foundation colors from blue black skins to very, the palest of, of, of porcelain skins and all gamuts from cools, green undertones, yellow undertones, red undertones. Uh, and we sort of covered everybody's um, you know, skin tone in, in, in our range of foundations. We've talked a lot about the trend toward 40 foundation shades on the podcast recently. Of course, when we say trend, we don't mean trendy. We just mean what's happening in the industry right now. But MAC was really leading in this category toward inclusive skin tone shades from the very beginning. Curiously, though, MAC's strategy wasn't as much about the quantity of shades available. It was more about giving people the tools to make their own match. So we were early on, we were doing it by, by um, we didn't have the ability to package that many skin tones. So we were doing it by selling pigment and people were able to mix their own pigments, which really... Uh, it allowed them to participate in, in, in making their own products as well to some degree, and that was kind of interesting. Uh, we would sell like yellow pigment or blue pigment or red pigment, so you could mix it into your foundation and, and alter it because you don't need that many different products. I mean, you could take a, a skin cream and mix it into your foundation. You could stretch your foundation by mixing it into, you know, like a, a different uh, medium. So uh, we, we always tried to limit the number of products we had by utilizing um, you know, d different mediums. Cover Effects is a line that I started uh, with my uh, brother-in-law after um, we sold MAC. And uh, it's in the market today and it has incredible foundation shades and also offers the same type of uh, philosophy. Like you can buy a shiny pigment and use it in your foundation. You can use it in your skin cream. You can use it dry, you can use it wet, you can use it uh, you know, in, so many in so many ways. So
Thank you for listening to this special edition of Breaking Beauty Podcast. You've now heard the origin story behind how MAC Cosmetics came to be. So tune in to part two, dropping in your feeds tomorrow, where you will hear the epic story behind Viva Glam, juicy celebrity nuggets, hello Madonna, and the indie startup that Frank Toskin is cooking up next.